I tend to believe that making physical components is how innovation happens. So I'm of the school of thought that humans are inherently, we're in-person beings. We don't want to sit in a room with a mask on and not move around. If we live in a physical world, in order for our world to progress, you have to be able to innovate in physical components, which means you need manufacturing. Welcome to the Leaders of B2B podcast, a weekly show where we bring you interviews and in-the-weeds expertise with today's B2B experts and thought leaders. You can see more about today's episode and guest by visiting our website at leadersofb2b.com. This episode is brought to you by Content Allies. We help B2B companies launch revenue-generating podcasts. We schedule interviews between you and your ideal prospects and strategic partners. You show up for engaging conversations. We handle everything else. Ready to build a podcast that grows your business in just one hour per week? Reach out to us at contentallies.com. Hey, leaders, welcome back. This is Ledge. Really excited to welcome Jason Ray to the show today. Jason, would love if you would give a little bit of introduction of yourself and your work, and then we'll dive in and have a good chat. That sounds great, Ledge. Thanks for having me. My name is Jason Ray. I am the CEO and one of the co-founders at Paperless Parts. So Paperless Parts is a Boston-based SaaS company. We focus on providing estimating and quoting solutions to job shop manufacturers. So those are CNC machine shops, sheet metal fabricators, generally making metal components that go into anything from rockets to medical devices, to tractors, to automobiles, you name it. So I, I think one of, one of the coolest things about what we do is we get to see such a wide variety of different types of manufacturing, and you just get to see how powerful the U.S. industrial base is. So my background is military. So I grew up in the United States Navy as a supply and logistics officer, went there after college, got to be on a minesweeper, which was really cool wooden ship, learned a lot about supply chain logistics, learned a lot about the U.S. industrial base, and then started paperless parts. We started working on the software right at the end of 2016 and officially started the company right at the beginning of 2017. And so we're talking about parts that go into all kinds of things that people might use on a regular basis or surprising little tiny or big metal stuff that just makes mechanical things work there. So that's that touch point of very physical items, which obviously fits into that logistics, supply chain, like all the parts of things need to come from somewhere. And I guess you started to realize maybe through your experience that the the management and movement of all that stuff requires then technological innovation to to make that better at scale. Is that accurate? Yeah, and I think the biggest thing we found is we have one of the most advanced industrial bases in the world. So you can actually, you can make almost anything in the United States, but the front office of those manufacturing operations, the area where the business happens, where the quoting, where the interaction with customers happens, are they're generally decades behind where modern businesses sit. And they're running their businesses on Outlook and Microsoft Excel, and they're communicating via phone and fax. And analog nature of that limits the accessibility. So I tend to think that if something exists, but you can't buy it, that means it's not accessible. 
And that's what the capacity is in the United States. So you've got this really amazing manufacturing capability and you have a ton of capacity across tens of thousands of machine shops. But in general, if you reach out to do business with those shops and they're a little busy or they don't know who you are, they're not willing to respond to your request, that capability and the capacity might as well not exist. And that forces a lot of innovative companies to look overseas and to go elsewhere for manufacturing. Then you have a pandemic and you have supply chain problems overseas and you end up in a situation where now people are like, oh my God, there are no sources of supply. And I just think that's not true. I think we have a really incredible industrial base here. It's just been underserved by modern software companies for the better part of 50 years. If I need 1,000 of the same little gear or something, I or a million of them, I would have gone to some type of Alibaba.com or some type of place that I might think about buying and interfacing with some kind of manufacturer, which would have come over on a ship and sat in a container outside of the ports for two and a half months and things got really jacked up. So I can't even sell ultimately my product unless I can source from the US, but then how do I source from the US because I can't find the things that I need? It's almost like it's not just back office. It's almost like it's front office, it's marketing, it's accessibility and all of those things there. Like you're solving every problem almost except, or you have to address every problem, except, you know, that we can pump out really nice metal pieces of things. Yeah, I think there's a trade-off that's being made when people choose to purchase manufactured components overseas. And a lot of it comes down to price. Some of it comes down to availability. Some of it comes down to the ability to interact and work with those companies because the companies overseas really want the business. And so if you're getting a better price, it could make a lot of sense to go overseas. You could be in a situation where you're sitting there and you say, okay, you know, it's going to save me 50 cents per widget and I'm making a million widgets. So that's 500 grand. And so it's great to save me 500 grand, but then those widgets don't come and they're six weeks late. And now you have a production line that's been waiting for those widgets for six weeks. And now that costs you $3 million. And that's like a whole hypothetical scenario that people run and they're like, well, the supply chain will never turn off for six weeks. And then you have a situation like COVID where the supply chain turns off for six weeks and maybe it's in weeks or a year. And now they start to see the real cost of not developing and cultivating local supply chains for industrial components. And even if it was 50 cents more a component, the opportunity cost of supply chain disruption is just such a higher dollar amount. And now it's very easy for companies to quantify that, which is why you're seeing a lot of onshoring. So you've been able to, and I've talked to a lot of founders or now that post pandemic are going, oh, my time finally arrived and people are listening to what I said was going to happen. And you started the company in 2016. So you had to then have a reason of existing prior to that. So it's the timing and meta forces or macro forces caught up in a significant way that really helped out. What was the story before that? I mean, it's like holistically a thing we should have done anyway, and for all kinds of reasons that are really good for our own economic and welfare development. But that wasn't the case before. And you certainly weren't sitting around being like, if there was just a global supply chain disruption, like that would really help business. Clearly it's evolved. What was it before? Yeah, honestly, I wanted to go run a machine shop. I was, I really, I'm a big 
in-person physical things. I like that stuff. I loved being in the Navy. I loved working with my crew. I loved being on the ship. It was awesome. And I tend to believe that making physical components is how innovation happens. So I'm of the school of thought that humans are inherently, we're in-person beings where we don't want to sit in a room with a mask on and not move around. So in order for our world, if we live in a physical world, in order for our world to progress, you have to be able to innovate in physical components, which means you need manufacturing. If we're going to go to Mars, we need to be able to build a rocket to go to Mars. If you're going to build medical devices where you can do surgery and different types of surgeries and you can do them more effectively and save people's lives, well, you need those physical medical devices. Like no software is going to solve a surgery. Like maybe it will when it's paired with a physical device, but not just like you're going to hack someone's body. That's not probably not going to happen anytime soon. So my perspective, I went and started looking for a machine shop to buy, and I was really into it. I wanted to buy a company. I'd raised a bunch of money and going out and visiting a lot of shops. One of the things that I realized is all these shops run by brute force in the truest sense of like American entrepreneurship. Like these are owners that for the last 25 years have day in and day out built profitable, which is such a crazy word in our current startup environment but built profitable companies, like companies that actually had to generate value and make money to survive. And I have such admiration for that because I know how hard it is in business to do that year after year through recessions, through pandemics, these companies survive. And so from my perspective, I started looking at these businesses and I'm like, oh my God, they're all run by like total heroic effort and brute force. But when I replace that owner, there's no way that 30 years of knowledge, it was like a key linchpin being pulled out of the business. And it just became hyper risky. So as I started to see this over and over again, and I didn't feel comfortable personally buying a business and I thought I was fairly capable. I felt like I knew enough about business and I knew a good bit about manufacturing. I thought if anybody's going to be able to do this and do it fairly well, it would be me or somebody else that has a mechanical engineering degree. But I had enough money. I felt like I could make a big impact, but I still, the risk reward wasn't there for me. And I said, you know what? If I don't want to buy these businesses, who's going to buy them? Where do they go? And if they go away, what do we lose as a country? If yeah, that makes, that makes a great, yeah. And essentially discovering the blocker made you then interested in solving that problem, which becomes a software problem. And so you go from being, I'm going to be a hardware guy to now I run a, a SaaS company and yeah, it's wild. it's like a non-traditional path, but, but also that, that real contact with the market, I think is so often missing. And when I talk to really good companies that have really evolved and they're profitable and they're doing really important things. There's so much of that on the ground research and time spent, like actually talking to the future customer and living in that, that world. How much time was that of shopping, learning, thinking about like, just being like, oh snap, like this is the core problem. Oh my God. Nine months straight of visiting shops and cold calling shops trying to buy them and looking at their financials and looking at their businesses through the lens of a 
potential future owner. And then hundreds of shops after starting the business. We've been in machine shops all over the country and we have over 500 customers today. And it's I think the company's growing really fast. So you get to see tons of shops everywhere. It's really amazing. I don't think people understand how big our industrial base is. And it is, it's just, I'm always at awe. You drive into this parking lot and there's this building and then you go inside this building and there are hundreds of machines that are producing things that people use every single day. And that was the thing. There's been a couple of moments in this business that really sealed it for me. I think one of them was watching our customers switch to making medical devices and just seeing the flexibility that they could switch from, I'm going to make aerospace parts to, oh, now I'm going to make medical devices. And they wanted to, and were willing to do that because they knew how important it was for the country to get after it. And a lot of them just teamed up, figured out ways to solve problems. They had to go to work every day in person. We talk about first responders. We talk about people on the front lines. Don't really talk about the manufacturers making the parts that were going into ventilators that had to show up every day and run machines. Those people are really incredible. So there's that. And then even earlier than that, when we first built out our quoting solution, one of our customers texted me and he said, oh my God, did you see that order come in? And I said, oh, I wasn't, I didn't watch it. So like I went and I looked and I was like, oh yeah, that was a really big one. Congrats. And he's like, no, you don't understand. He's like, that's going to pay for my kid to go to college. And that, that, I think that moment was a moment where it clicked. This is not B2B SaaS to SaaS to, to CIO or CTO doesn't give a shit about what, you know, the software actually does. And it's just an ROI number. It's not, no, this is, this is the difference between making college tuition payments and giving Christmas bonuses and like doing all the things that small businesses, people love about them because the owners truly care about their people. And if we can drive those businesses and we can increase their revenue, we can increase their profitability. That's like worth doing. It really is. And that felt like a really worthy cause to me. And that's been one of the things that's driven me through. We've been through a lot of growth phases and a lot of challenges over the last five years, but I keep coming back to that. I'm like, if I can make these lives better and I can make these businesses better and industrial base more resilient, then I should. Yeah. I'm a sales guy. So the first thing I go to is I've talked to a lot of people that try to sell to this type of business that you just know, no, really, like I could save your life and you're not going to tank your family. And you just kind of, but it's, it's really hard to digitally transform a business like that and figure out how to getting your first initial accounts talk about brute force like that must have just been i'm surprised you don't have a haircut like mine it's running it's i try to hide it i'm growing it in the back so i can flip it up over the front and i'm just like it's gonna i'm gonna have like the hairline that i used to have it'll be good no it's, it's really challenging i think the thing what it starts with is establishing trust and it's not trusting the company i think that was a big pivot point for us where our company became a company that you could trust but probably for the first few years, it was, they trusted me. And that was, I carried that responsibility. I felt very responsible for making sure that I responded to their emails and I got on support and I 
QA'd the site before we released new features so there weren't bugs. And it was a commitment and it was a handshake and it was a eye contact. And it was all the things that I was always taught growing up that were important in business. And that is that was the difference for us in terms of capturing those first few customers. And that's how we train our sales team to go to market today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like you have to deal in a very non-self-serve SaaS kind of way when your customer is, that's how they do business. And which obviously introduces all kinds of friction and travel and all kinds of stuff that you're being told currently you shouldn't do that. And there's, I'm an online sales guy, like I've been doing it for years. There's a lot of things you can sell online. There's no freaking way that I could get enough Zoom calls with your client to make any difference at all. And that's just like such a daunting undertaking unless you're passionate about it. Yeah, it's really hard. You, You really have to care about the industry. You have to care about the customers. I think the other thing that you have to come to terms with is these people have been running their businesses for 20 to 30 to 40 to 50 years without us. So the sense of urgency in changing while could have a tremendous impact, and we have so many case studies that show it has a tremendous impact. When they say, yeah, we'll look at this next year. They can, a year is not like, it's funny. They say in startups, a week is a year. Like a month can be a year, a quarter can be a year. Like you're doing- No, that's a real year you're talking about. Like in real manufacturing companies, like they know they're going to be in business for the next 80 years. That's their plan. They, I just they, like, you're just, you're racing like their cholesterol and potential to have a heart attack, or maybe they're going to cut their arm off and their kid doesn't want to take off the business. You talk about a long sales cycle, like it, it it's enterprise bad. value, but at a glacial pace, eventually you're going to want to stop and you're going to be 72 years old and you can't move any of your limbs anymore. And then you might fall out dead from the shop, but you're really talking about, wouldn't it be okay if I let you become, I don't know, I want to say the patriarch, but build a legacy around this business that, and then you can pay for things because you're going to have to stop at some point. And could we at least start thinking about that in one lane? Yeah, it's... I always felt really bad talking to owners who thought their businesses were worth a lot more than they were because it's one of those, I feel it like this business is a, is like my child. Like I love what we do. We have 140 people here. We are, they are awesome people who care so much about the industry. And when someone calls your child ugly, the claws come out. It's so it's really a hard reconciliation, a mental reconciliation, when you have to come to terms with the fact that you think you've generated a certain amount of value that should be good for your family. It should give you the ability to retire. It should give you the ability to do some things that you've sacrificed for decades. And then you realize, wait a second, because of the lack of infrastructure, because I'm a critical linchpin, because there's so much risk, because of liquidity discounts, because of all this bullshit finance terms, name it, your business is not worth what you thought it was. And that's a really hard conversation. And I got tired of seeing that look on people's face when uh, that kind of like that look that's a, I know you're right, but I still really hate you for being right. Look, I just got tired of that. I'm like, screw it. Let's go do something that creates massive value for people. And so when they have that conversation with someone else in the future, 
they've got just a much stronger to stand on. Yeah. Do you think they would have had to have that initial conversation to drive that uh, urgency that is just simply not urgency otherwise? I just don't think there's a generation there you're talking about that didn't want to ever talk about money. They didn't want to talk about death. It's just like you you go to work and you kill yourself for the rest of time and things are going to work out and come out of the coal mine and dust it off. And you can appreciate that. It's the picture of the American in the Chevy truck ad. or And we romanticize that to the point where now it's hard to have that conversation. Was it, is one of those conversations necessary in order to make change? I think there have been a lot of drivers of change. I think that conversation is one of them. And I think a lot of owners are having that conversation now, especially this decade will be a big decade of retirement, passing it off. And it's funny, this whole concept of retirement, everyone thinks this is like, just like a thing that everyone has always done. And what I think a lot of people don't realize is retirement is a relatively new thing. Like in terms of the scope of the last thousand years, this is not, retirement is very new. And I don't necessarily know that a lot of our customers have ever really thought they were going to retire and ride off in the sunset. But I do think that they want to build businesses that their children want to take over and are excited to take over. And I think we're seeing a lot of that actually. And I'm very excited about that because not only when a younger owner steps in, a lot of the daughters are taking over shops. A lot of the sons that went and worked at Pratt & Whitney. You're getting these very young tech savvy shop owners that are excited to come in and drive the next generation of the business. And the businesses are becoming much more digital native, which is huge for companies like mine. Yeah, absolutely. A lot. This whole like psychological change management type of thing. It's the kind of stuff that like you mentioned the worked at the big companies and corporate and all that. And it's the stuff where, you know, those of us who were at one point consultants or something have 80% change management and it's all about the people. And this is like exactly like that, except not at all like that. <laughs> and I think that's just so interesting because you're tapping into this vertical of uh, so much deeper psychology and almost like the evolution of a whole workforce that is just, this isn't just Susie doesn't want to change the accounting package because she's used to the way she clicks on Excel. You are just orders of magnitude past like the depth of that. <laughs> yeah. And then to make it even a little bit more challenging, estimating is the one of the riskiest things that a business can do. Because if you miss a quote, you miss high, you're not going to win it. You miss low, you're probably going to win it more often than not. And if you're low, because you are producing physical items, you can actually lose money. Like in software, yeah, I can lose money, but the margins are so really good software margins. And it's not like I have to go out and buy metal that's 30% of the cost of jobs. So it's not like I have that problem. And so at the end of the day, this is a very close to the vest process. And I think that, I think acknowledging and respecting that level of gravity when it comes to how important this process is for business owners and not being blase about it. Oh yeah, we're going to make you quote faster. You want this? That doesn't go over well. It's no, we recognize this is one of the most important things you can do in your business. Yeah. And we want to help you do it a little bit more efficiently. And, and how much of that has been coming from just the gut of, you know, Johnny American, who just has been doing this so long 
that you can look at an RFP or a quote and just go like, this is what it's going to be and, and be right. And then I can't imagine how that you have been able to draw that intelligence out of that tacit knowledge and experience into just how do you even think about getting software to help with that? <laughs> it is really hard. And I think the thing that stands out to me, the human brain is the most powerful computer. So it's, it's not just like this gut feel, but it's all of these repeat acknowledgement. They've seen thousands of parts. They've made thousands of parts. They just know. And the brain is doing calculations so fast when they're looking at a drawing and they're picking it up. I think it was it Malcolm Gladwell that wrote Blink. Like that initial gut feel when you've done something for 30 years, it's just absolutely incredible. But it's but it is computation. It's not swag. Oh yeah, it's 300 bucks. No, they looked at it and their brain ran through hundreds of processes really fast. And that makes it very challenging to try to turn that into software. And so what we do is we don't try to replace the human brain. But what we're trying to do is we're trying to put some guardrails up that allow humans to move even faster through the process without risking stepping over the lines. One of the things we like to say at Paperless Parts is like, never miss. What we're going to try to do is we're going to try to catch all the little gotchas and just, just lift those a little bit higher in your face so you don't miss. And I think that's an area where we can add tremendous value for customers. You just made me think of an interesting thing of all the machine shops are running your software in a perfect world for your company, then it's your software bidding against your software and never missing. And does the margin of error just get tinier, tinier, and then everybody has the same price? <laughs> I'm running down the line on that. Oh, no, it's an awesome question. I think we get this question sometimes from customers. So our software is not a software that tells you how to quote. Our software is a highly configurable pricing engine. And so every single shop thinks about pricing parts differently. So you could have 50 shops quoting the same part. You could have 10 people in the same shop quoting the same part and it ends up being different each time. It's we, one of the things that we built that's part of our core technology is this pricing language. It's a subset of Python. We made it really easy to go in and write this pricing language so that you can leverage any variable we expose. So if 50 shops are quoting the same parts, we're going to expose the same variables, but just kind of like Lego building blocks, you get those free blocks. Everyone's going to assemble it into a different looking picture or a different looking sculpture. Yeah, you're allowing for a risk mitigated opportunity to build your algorithm without being like exceptionally screwed up and wrong and ruining your business. And that's why we don't do, I don't know, maybe someday I'll have to eat my own words, but like this whole AI. <laughs> I just said, this is definitely going to be an AI rant. Yeah. <laughs> just, I saw it on your face. <laughs> yeah. It's like, no, like, if we were doing AI, then what you just talked about is would happen. Yeah. Because right, sure. algorithms would overfit to specific types of parts and everybody's algorithm would look exactly the same. And we'd be trying to find the biggest training set possible to run it on. And I don't know. I don't think that works. We've tried that. We did it in 2017 on like hundreds of thousands of parts. It doesn't really work. Manufacturing is wicked complicated. There are hundreds of variables 
in a shop down to the preferences of the operator. And it is, you can't predict a lot of that. So estimating is very much an art form. So like I tend to think costing is a science and pricing is an art. And that's a statement that we make here. And we try to make costing a lot easier and a lot more structured in how you think about activity-based costing. But pricing is very much at the estimator's their behest. And that has a lot of, lot to do with market dynamics as well. Relationships, or maybe I just want to buy from your shop and I don't want to descend to the commoditized mean. There's That's where you're really enabling people to get into the power position in the conversation in the first place. But because they've previously had some kind of precision, and as I completely understand that, the first thing you would do in a complex sales is go, look, I just at least need some guidelines on what do COGS for this thing because oh, yeah. I need to know what's my walk away. I need to know what's the market doing. Did they previously work with a competitor they didn't like that had a certain price or whatever it is? Like, And I think that just getting the data in hands in a way that can be useful is really the value. Yeah. Okay. I tell me, you, you told me a bunch of neat things and I always like to make sure I leave time for the sort of stuff that didn't go right. Or as I say, there's a lot of founders behind you or people that want to run good businesses and do new cool stuff. And if you were blazing ahead at 100 miles an hour and you hit a speed bump, it's just polite to throw the hand out the window and go, hey, slow down or don't hit that speed bump around that turn. And, you know, that I love to get some tactical things on like stuff I wish I knew back then. <laughs> yeah, I've got a whole bunch of things that I can share. I think first and foremost, I tend to think that life is an equation and your life is an equation that always equals 24. So you have 24 hours in a day and the decisions that you make in your life as a founder, you have to really come to terms with. So if you're going to be the founder of a business and you're going to try to grow fast and hire people and work with customers, like maybe don't commute an hour each way to work because you're eating away at your equation. Like the things that I don't do, and this is by coming from my co-founder. I live next to our office. I don't go grocery shopping. I don't cook. There's a lot of things that we don't do that I like to do. I don't mind doing that stuff. Like I, I enjoy it, but I'm trying to optimize my equation to be the right CEO for the company right now. And that requires a lot of time. And I think people fall into this fallacy of thinking they should be able to do it in eight hours a day, maybe 10 hours a day. And I don't think there are any shoulds. Starting a business and building a business is really hard. And it's just the more time you put towards it, the faster you can try to climb that ramp. And it's not for everyone. So that's the first thing that I would just share. Think about your equation and really think tight on that because you can't change the outcome of it as much as you like. And so that's one thing that I think about a lot. The other thing is, you know, growing really fast is hard. And it's, and it, the hardest part about it is growing in a even way. I say the rising tide raises all ships like that story, but the reality is it's not perfect. You're gonna grow a lot in one area of the business, but you can't make hires in the other. And then that'll catch up. And it's just like weird seesaw. And you kind of have to do the best you possibly can. And you have to plan for it to not be this perfect crescendo of growth. 
It's gonna be, it's gonna be a, a little bit of a messy track. I am I love being in person. So I think a lot of people are drinking the Kool-Aid on starting fully remote businesses. And so we went through the pandemic just like everybody else, and we were remote, and we started doing employee surveys to check in on everyone. And every person at the company was saying they were burned out. They were miserable, burned out, and I'm sitting there, and we maybe had 45 people at the time, 40 people, and I'm like, oh my God, like, what are we doing wrong? Nothing's really changed in the business. Everything's going really well. Why are people miserable? And it was that time when I started to feel it myself. And I said, you know what? I'm just lonely. And I said, instead of this, we're getting a big office. And I went against the grain, middle of COVID, leveled up, doubled the size of our office space, moved into a big office. Yeah, it was a good time to buy office space. <laughs> yeah, no, we, we ended up getting a great deal, but I told everybody to come back in. And I said, look, you come back in for two weeks. If you don't want to come in anymore, you don't have to come in, but come in for two weeks. People didn't leave. There's 95 people in the office outside of me right now, somewhere around that. There are people sitting on couches and at tables. We've outgrown the space. But it, it ends up coming back to this interesting roller coaster. So if you think of like the highs or the highs and the sine wave and the lows or the lows, when you're alone, is the highs are they're okay, but there's no one to high five. There's no bell ringing. You can't go pick somebody up and carry them around the office. Like you can't do the really cool stuff. And the lows, there's no one to pull you out of that low. So when you're alone, it's just this up and down and up and down. You need this enormous amount of personal resilience to be successful in that environment. But when you're together, and you start to, the sine waves don't all line up. Not everybody's at a high at the same time. Not everybody's at a low at the same time. So what ends up happening is the people that are at highs yank the lows up. And the highs get even higher because you're celebrating with everybody else. And so the whole sine wave shifts up. And it changes the dynamic and the momentum in the business dramatically. And I think that is people take that for granted with setting up remote businesses. And I'm not saying you can't build a business remote. I'm not saying you can't have remote employees. Like there are no definitives here. But what I am saying is I have seen a business and the culture suffer when people are separate. And I've also seen the business really thrive and the morale and the camaraderie and the relationships go through the roof when everyone's together. And it is awesome. And I think life transcends the business that you are building. And a lot of your life is spent working on a business. So if you want to have relationships and you want to have stories and memories and people to commiserate with and people who show up at your wedding and they're, they're your friend group, a lot of that's going to be developed at work. And if you don't have that ability to build those relationships, it's not going to be nearly as fulfilling when you look back in 20 years. So, I love this. Yeah. Good perspectives. Okay. I am an advocate of the sort of, I like doing remote and built all remote on purpose, but I can't disagree with anything you're saying. And like, yeah, there are times when I go, shit, I haven't talked to an adult human in person in a long time. And it would probably be good to, to do that. Yeah, yeah I totally get it. And I do think that, Folks who have tried to scale, like you're talking about tripling your headcount remotely over the course of two years, 
would be outrageously difficult. And so I think there's definitely something to be said there for we've left the sort of it's not just the two pizza team anymore. We're just spreading things thin. And you can do it in a certain way and you may not aspire to be something else there, but like to ignore the leveling up factor that, that you described, I think is definitely it's just like a known detriment that you ought to be aware you're taking on if you go that route. So I think intentionality is absolutely critical. And if you're aware of what it is and you work around it and you plan for it, you, we're humans are a massive amount of ingenuity. So you'll find a way to make it work for sure. But it's just, it, again, it comes back to your equation. Where are you going to spend your energy and your time and your focus and your structure? Because there's going to be draws on other areas. So how does that equation play out? Some people make it play out really well. And that is awesome. And it's different for every type of business. I think our customers today run in-person businesses. So trying to mimic as much of the relationship-driven culture as they have helps us be empathetic to the type of businesses they're running. Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely right. I think that customer empathy and awareness and copying that culture into the sassy space probably allows you to relate in such a way that is just impossible if you don't do it. I remember talking to a a founder of a drone technology company and they fly these drones into mines and they map them there. And you you could do it remotely. It's just a device that throws a bunch of data at a little box that you plug in. But yeah, how are you ever going to have credibility without boots on the ground with the miners of all people? This is not who you have a Zoom meeting with. And I think that that was prescient of them. It'd be like, everybody starts at the mine. I don't care if you're a software engineer. I don't care who what you are. You're going to go work at the mine for a couple of weeks. And I think that's right. And it's that intentionality that you talked about. The just You just know I've got a certain number of variables and, you know, I can't have whatever A through X and have one hour on each thing to meet by 24. Like it just, you could try that, but it's going to be a freaking disaster. That's awesome, man. So the last question I always do is just put on your near-term futurist hat, I like to say, and just B2B leaders are listening of all stripes. And so I like to say, what should they have on their radar that they maybe don't over that next two to three year type of cycle? What's the most important stuff to have on the radar screen? That's a great question. I don't know that I appreciate the opportunity to answer it. And I would just have everybody take it with a grain of salt because this is my first time doing it for what it's worth. I tend to think of it through the lens of B2B SaaS venture backed companies. And I think understanding the types of companies that you are selling to and what their world looks like right now is really important. I've got some great friends who are co-founders, but they sell to other startups and other software companies. And a lot of those software companies are having the same conversations we're having, which is maybe we don't need to pay for that next year. You know, it's the world is changing quite a bit in industrial and in B2B SaaS, vertical SaaS, horizontal SaaS, doesn't really matter what it is, but the world is definitely starting to change and everything has its cycles. So will it come back? Absolutely. But For the moment, there's a pretty good correction happening right now, and you're seeing it in the form of tens of thousands of layoffs across a big part of the sector. And probably pretty healthy. It's not really really unfortunate. 
But I think the best advice I could give anybody, and everybody probably already knows this, but really be in touch with what's going on in your customers' businesses. I talk to our customers pretty regularly and I ask them, how are you doing? How's business? How's life? Where, where's your head? What are you thinking? Are we creating value for you? Real value? I think that's really important because it's in software businesses, especially losing customers. That's the kiss of death. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Every business is going to face this. And I've been warning my followers, like, look, if you are dealing with one of these companies, you have to know that the shit's going to roll downhill and somebody you never provided value to, it doesn't matter that your stakeholder or your user or whoever sees value and loves your thing, when they're told to cut their budget 50%, like they're going to have to make hard choices or they might be getting laid off. And be aware of that. Build risk tolerance into your business. I'm old enough to have run a company through 2009 and revenue can go to zero. Trust me, I know this. (laughs) Got cash is king and risk mitigation is a real thing. So. Jason, I appreciate the insights. This was a lot of fun. If people are out there resonating and want to get in touch with you, what are the best channels to do that? I'm primarily LinkedIn. That's normally where I spend my time. Yeah, I think LinkedIn is probably the best way to reach out and connect. And I think you're Jason T. Ray on LinkedIn, right? So I am. That's right. There's a lot of Jason right. Rays. <laughs> right, right. Awesome, man. Hey, thanks for hanging out. Really appreciate it. And uh, we look forward to tracking the company and your success going forward. Yeah, thanks for having me, Ledge. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening. And we hope you enjoyed this episode of the Leaders of B2B podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please give us a five-star rating. And as always, you can see more information about this episode and all the resources mentioned at leadersofb2b.com.